You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, you just heard a lot of the Bible read. We are covering like three and a half chapters today. And so I just want to say this up front. I cannot say everything today. Uh, unless you want to be here for like four hours, right? It's just there's too much information to cover. So as a a case in point of that, uh, the first four verses of Genesis chapter 6 are some of the most controversial, debated texts in all of the Bible. What are the sons of God? What are the Nephilim? All these things in the first four verses. And I just have to say this up front, I can't address any of them today. I would have loved to have, but we just don't have time to do it. And so you're going to have to forgive me for that. We're going to go for the main themes of these uh, couple of chapters that we're in today. Now, to sort of move us into these main themes, let me start with this quote by A.W. Tozer. He was a pastor of a generation ago, and he once said that the most important thought you'll ever think is the one immediately following the word God. Like what just happened, the thought that came into your mind when you heard the word God, That thought right there is the most important thought you will ever think. And here's the reason it's so important. That thought immediately following the word God shows you your God. It shows you what what you think God is like. Or we, we maybe could say it in a better way by saying it this way. It shows you what you would like God to be like. That's what's happening with that thought that immediately follows the word God. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 shows us that we, uh, just humanity in general, you, me, all of us, uh, that we are made in the image of God. But east of Eden, we all by nature make God into our image. This is just what we do as human beings. Uh, We have a tendency to shape and reshape God so that God becomes palatable, uh, palatable to us. So that he kind of fits our sensibilities. He he kind of fits our idea of what God should be. We all have a tendency to do this, to to make God in our image. Rather than shaping ourselves to be like God, we reshape God to be like us. This is just what human beings do. So it's important that we all ask the question periodically, where did I get my thoughts of God? Have you ever asked yourself that question? You have thoughts of God. And the question is, where did you get those thoughts of God? Now, for most people, uh, here's the way our thoughts of God form. We mix in one part of sort of cultural beliefs about God. Uh, We mix in one part of sort of our family beliefs about God. And then a lot of people in our culture will sprinkle a little bit of Bible on top of that mixture. And that's where our thoughts of God form. So we should ask ourselves, how do we know that our view of God isn't made up? That we just sort of, we haven't just sort of created our own God, made a new God to kind of be like what we want. How do we know we haven't done that? Uh, imagine for a, mi- a moment me looking at my beautiful wife, Laura. She's amazing. And uh, me just having this heartfelt moment with her where I'm just expressing my love to her. And I, I look at her in the eyes and I say, Laura, I want you to know how much I love you. I mean, your big, beautiful blue eyes, they're amazing. That long, flowing, blonde hair, it's unbelievable. And then all of a sudden, you see Laura slap me. And she's like, I don't know what woman you're talking about, but I don't have blue eyes or blonde hair, right? 
Now, I think this is what happens to us with God a lot. We look at God and we're like, God, you're so amazing. I love you. I mean, you are this. You are that, God. You've got those blue eyes. You've got that blonde hair. And God's like, I think you got the wrong God. I, I think you're talking about a different one, a God that you've created. So how do we make sure that we have the right God? Well, the only way I know to do that is to open up the scriptures and to read it for yourself. Not taking a second hand from other people, but for you to open up the Bible and for you to read it for yourself, asking God the question, God, who do you say that you are? Who do you reveal yourself to be? And church, the text we're in today is especially helpful for anyone wanting to make sure you have the right God. Not a God of your own making, not a God that you've kind of fashioned to shape your sensibilities, right? To kind of agree with you in everything. No, not, not that God, but, but the actual God, the, the God that actually exists, the God that reveals himself in the scripture. We today are looking at one of the most sobering scenes in the Bible. It's, it's a startling scene to our sort of 21st century sensibilities. But if, if we want God, like the, the real God, if we want that God, this is a scene we all need to see. Now, here's what I want to do uh, with this text today. I, I want to just allow uh, the two big themes that make up the text, I want to allow those to kind of come to the forefront for us. And I want to show you uh, the two pictures in this scene uh, that, that sort of show us those bigger themes uh, that make up this text. So here's the first. Uh, these two big themes that, that kind of arise out of this text. Here, here's the first. This text shows us a picture of divine judgment. It's part of what this text is doing. It's showing us a picture of divine judgment. Now, I just want to take a, a step back and acknowledge last week, we talked about death. This week, judgment. For all three of you who will be back next week, we're going to meet at 9 and 11. We'll be right back here in this building, right? Uh, it's probably good just to acknowledge um, I love preaching through books of the Bible because it's not us setting the agenda, it's God setting the agenda. And it's amazing to think that in the opening chapters of the Bible, we're not in the middle of the Bible, we're not at the end of the Bible, we are like at the beginning, we're in the prologue of the Bible. And these are the themes God wants to platform for us to consider. Death, last week, and he what? died last week, eight times in Genesis chapter five. And, and now this week, divine judgment. These are the things God is platforming for us to see and to recognize and to see in him, about him. Uh, this is a, a picture of divine judgment. So uh, to think about that, let's just start with the phrase Noah's Ark. Uh, when you hear that phrase, what comes into your mind? What pictures uh, begin to, to arise in your mind? I think for most people, the pictures that sort of arise when we hear the word or the phrase Noah's Ark, uh, they're pleasant pictures, right? Uh, we think of a boat floating on calm water. Uh, we think maybe, it, maybe it's that old puzzle that you did of Noah's Ark, right? It's got this beautiful scenery behind it, this huge ark, and, and all of these beautiful animals calmly walking onto the ark. Maybe it's that picture. 
But those pleasant pictures couldn't be further from what this text presents. Genesis chapter 6, verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will, this is just words from God. I, I'm not making any of this stuff. I'm just reading what God says. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Chapter 6, verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything, everything that is on the earth shall die. Genesis chapter 7 verse 19. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole of heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Verse 21, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Verse 23, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. In contrast to a boat floating on calm water, Gustave Dore, he was a French artist, and he did a series of paintings through the various stories of the Bible. He did hundreds of them. And some of those paintings were of this story, of the flood. And those paintings are terrifying. You can Google them later and look at them, but one of his paintings... Um, it's water, just rough, raging water. And the only thing above the, the water is this one little peak of rock. That's it. There's one little part of this rock jutting out from this rough, raging water. There's bodies floating everywhere. And, and right next to the rock is this um, husband and wife, mom and a dad, who are doing everything they can to push their kid up on the rock while the water is just coming up and flooding everything. And on that rock is a tiger with its cubs. That's the picture of this text. It's not, a, it's not a pleasant scene with a boat on calm water. It's a sobering scene. In this text, everyone and everything dies. That's what we're seeing in Genesis 6 and 7. Everyone and everything dies. Here's one, here's one thing this text shows us about God. God is a judge. He's the judge. See, if, if when you think of God, God the judge doesn't fit into your thinking of God, it means that you have reshaped God to be more palatable to you, to sort of fit your sensibilities. But here's one thing the Bible shows about God, that God reveals about himself in the Bible, that he is the judge. And as judge, God will one day swallow up every sin and every sinner. And when I say that, here, here's one of the things I just feel as a pastor and a preacher, is I don't, I, I don't 
know of anything else I could say that would be more offensive to our 21st century sensibilities. R.C. Sproul was right when he said a few decades ago that the greatest myth of the 20th, and we could say now the 21st century, is that there is no wrath in God. See, this is one of the ways our culture has reshaped God. We've reshaped God so that God agrees with us in all the places that matter most. We've reshaped God to be a God without judgment. A God with no wrath. A God that's never provoked by our sin, but always agrees with whatever we think is right in our life. We've reshaped God to be like that. And this text is saying, no, that is not an accurate picture of God. God is the judge. And as the judge, God's wrath will one day swallow up every sin and every sinner. This text presents divine judgment. Okay, I need to take a 90-second sidebar. Okay, can you follow this sidebar with me? There is a lot of debate among conservative Bible-believing scholars about this text, about the flood. And let me just present the two sides of the debate. Here's side one. Side one is that Genesis 6, uh, just like it seems uh, on face value and a surface level reading, is referring to a global flood. The whole earth is flooded. Right? There's that side of the debate. Then the other side of the debate is that Genesis 6 is based on a real but regional flood. Like in that area of the world, that part of the world. And that real but regional flood is described with hyperbolic or uh, sort of global flood language. Okay, that's, that's the debate. Uh, is it global or is it a real but regional flood described with hyperbolic or global language? Now, let me just say two quick things about that debate. Number one. Uh, part of what I want us to be as a church is a church who knows what theological hills to die on. Not every theological hill you should die on. You, you shouldn't. But some you should. God is triune. You should die on that hill. Uh, Jesus is the only way to God. You should die on that hill. Right? You are saved by faith in Jesus through grace alone. You should die on that hill. But, but this theological hill is it, this sort of global flood or is it a real regional flood, right? That, that is not a hill you need to die on. It's not that important of an issue. This is one of those issues where you should be winsome, you should be persuasive, and you should do all you can to bring people into your camp of, of how you see it. But you should not divide over this uh, this theological sort of debate. It, it is not a point of division. And I say that mainly because uh, there is a camp out there, especially those who are in the global flood sort of side of it, there is a camp out there who, who would make this the sort of hill to die on. And I'm just saying to you as a church family, this is not one you should die on. This is not a hill for you to divide over. Uh, second thing to say about it, I'm not 100% certain uh, between those two options. I don't know for sure what view is right. And, uh, but I will say this, if, if a gun was to my head and I had to pick one, like I had to bet my life on it was this one, not that one. I would go with position number two, uh, that this is a real but regional flood that's described with hyperbolic sort of global flood language. That's the one I would go on. And, and mainly because I think it corresponds most uh, sort of neatly with our current sort of understanding of the geological evidence. But Here's the bigger point. I just want to say this again. It's not a hill to die on. 
You be persuasive, winsome, all that, but don't divide over this hill because regardless of which of those positions you hold, the truth of the text is the same. And here's the truth of the text. God is the judge. And as the judge, one day his wrath will swallow every sin and every sinner. That is consistent regardless of which of these two positions you're in. It's a picture. This text is a picture of divine judgment. Now, this text also gives us some texture for divine judgment, though. What is it? How is it? What are some of the nuances around divine judgment? Part of what this text shows is divine judgment is just judgment. It is just judgment that God deals out. Uh, Genesis 6 is not presenting a capricious God who just sort of loves to throw any uppercut that he can to people. That, that is not the God that we find in the scriptures. God will throw an uppercut because he is the judge, right? He, he will do that. Uh, but those sort of uppercuts, those moments of wrath or judgment don't come from the deepest places of God's heart. If you look down into the deepest places of God's heart... What you would find there is a gentle, kind, loving, just heart. That's our God. But when that gentle, kind, loving, just heart is provoked by wickedness, then wrath comes out. That's how God presents himself in the scriptures. Wrath is God's settled hatred over sin. It's a settled hatred. So God's not flying off the handle here. It's his settled hatred over sin. And wrath is a part of who God is. It's an attribute of God. It's a part of God. But I would want to put this little caveat to it. Wrath is a provoked attribute of God. It only comes out when the deeper things in his heart are provoked. Uh, let me give you an illustration of it that might help it make sense. Um, you have probably all met that sweet, sweet lady. You know this lady. This lady's heart is so tender that she literally feels bad when she kills a mosquito. I don't know how you feel bad when you kill a mosquito, but she knows how you feel bad when, when she kills it, right? I mean, she is just the sweetest thing ever. She is gentle. She is kind. She is humble. She is tender-hearted until you threaten her kid. Then she will murder you without remorse. <laughs> you, you know that lady, right? This is why we call moms, not just moms, but mama bears, right? Because when their kid is threatened, the bear comes out of them. No remorse, right? Now, th that is a picture of God's heart. God's heart is gentle. It is kind. It is loving. It is just. And you only see wrath when his heart is provoked by something. When the things he cares most deeply about are threatened. So what is provoking God in this passage? Why is it that we would look at this passage and say, this isn't just divine judgment. This is just judgment. Why would we say that? Well, look at verse 5 in Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How could you state the problem more emphatically? Like if you're going to craft a sentence to say this is how bad it is, how could you do better than that? 
Look at those words again. The wickedness of man was great on the earth. Great. That's a big word. Great on the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Uh, This is what human, or this is what uh, theologians call uh, human depravity. Uh, Human depravity means that human beings east of Eden are shot through with sin. It doesn't mean that you're as bad as you could be or that I'm as bad as I could be. It just means that every single part of us is affected by sin. But we never make a decision without sin, desire something without sin. We're shot through with sin. That's what human depravity is. And this is what this text is teaching. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then notice verse 6. Then the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. It grieved him. Have you ever asked yourself the question, what does my sin do to the heart of God? This text gives you the answer. Our sin cuts God's heart to the core. Every parent knows this feeling. There is no pain like kid pain. It's like the worst of pain. When a parent has one of their kids revolt against them, rebel against them. When a parent has one of their kids who they would, they would literally give their life for, disengage from them, cut them off. It is the worst kind of pain. Over the last few decades of ministry, I don't know how many parents that Laura and I have just sat with them, just weeping with them over the rebellion, the revolting of their kids. And that's a picture of what God feels. That's a picture of what God's feeling in this passage. When his kids run from him, rebel against him, revolt against him, it cuts God's heart to the core. And notice that language in verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. Now, this is again, this is an illustration of hyperbolic language. Regret is not meant to be taken literally as if God's saying, you know what, this is all so shocking and surprising. I didn't know any of this was coming. It's not that. God knew this moment would happen before there was a moment in time. God knew all of that. So, So God is not surprised at this moment. This text is using provocative language to provoke us. That's what this text is doing. It's trying to help us see and sense this is what our sin does to the heart of God. Friends, some of us this morning, we are holding on to sin in our life. We have turned from God and we we just refuse to let go of these particular sins, whatever they are for you. And that revolting, that rebelling against God, this is the effect of it. it. This text is meant to provoke us by seeing it's grieving the heart of God. It causes deep pain in the heart of God. Right now, there are many of us where God is just literally, his heart is weeping over us, keeping a hold of the sin in our life right now. And all the while, he is inviting us to come back home, to repent and come home to him. This text uses provocative language to provoke us. To help us see what our sin does to the heart of God. That it breaks the heart of God. 
Then notice verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Then in light of that wickedness, in light of all of that sin, we get to verse 13. And God said to Noah, in light of that, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God is saying, Noah, my tender love, my just heart has been provoked by their wickedness to wrath. He's saying, Noah, judgment is coming. My just judgment that's been provoked by their sin, judgment is coming, and it's about to swallow up every sin and every sinner. What we're seeing about divine judgment in this text is it's just judgment. It's a judgment that's provoked by human sin. We also see in this text that divine judgment is patient judgment. Our God is patient. Aren't we grateful that we have a God who is not easily provoked? Now, this is what Peter emphasizes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, where he says, in the midst of all of that disobedience, all of that crazy, all of that sin, all of that wickedness, Peter says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah. God didn't just fly off the handle in three seconds. That's not how God operated. No, he was patient. He waited week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, waiting patiently for us to turn from our sin and come back home to him. He's patient. He's not easily provoked. This is the ironic thing about this scene in the Bible, is that we have become so accustomed to the patience of God that we are shocked when his wrath is provoked. That's part of what this text is showing us. It's the reason why it's like when we come across Genesis 6, 7, and 8, that we're like, oh my, what is happening in this text? But we are so accustomed to the patience of God that we are shocked by his judgment. Shocked when his wrath is provoked in this world. But the text is showing us that it is a patient judgment. This is not God flying off the handle. This is God waiting centuries for people to turn from their sin and repent. This text shows us that divine judgment is also, um, or, or this judgment that we see here, this divine judgment, it's a future judgment. It's an eternal judgment. It's waiting in the future for us. So think of the Old Testament for a moment. Everything in the Old Testament points to the future. And the flood also is just like that. It's in the Old Testament pointing forward. The flood points us to the future. It's, maybe you can think of Genesis 6 like this. The flood of God's judgment in history, in Genesis chapter 6, points us to the coming flood of God's judgment at the end of history. Do you see what's happening there? This text in Genesis 6 is inviting us to look through it, this moment in history, to the end of history where God's judgment will come again. It will flood the earth again. That's what this text invites us to see. So think about last week for a moment. In Genesis chapter 5, we heard that constant refrain, and he what? 
died. That's Genesis 5. Eight times in Genesis chapter 5. And he died. Genesis 5 is the storied presentation of Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. But the wages of sin is not just confined to a physical death. It's actually worse than that. Physical death ushers us into an eternal or irreversible spiritual death. See, in a lot of ways, Genesis 6 is in the Bible to remind you, not that there was a flood of God's judgment in the past. That, that's not it. It's to remind us that there is a day coming when you will stand before God the judge. That's why Genesis 6 is in the scriptures for you. So that we would see in our future, this is what's awaiting. We will all stand before God the judge. This is where our life is headed. Uh, listen to Jesus talk about this. This is not my words. This is Jesus's words in Matthew 25. This will be on the screen behind me. He says it this way. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 41, then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire. That's Jesus's word. Eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels. Verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. At the end of God's judgment, those are the only two options. We'll stand before God one day and it will either be eternal punishment or eternal life. Th those are the two options. Th that's what's before every human being, a day before God where that will be decided. See, as sobering as the flood of Genesis 6 is, it pales in comparison to the coming flood of God's judgment. It's warning us of that coming flood. It's saying, hey, you, you need to make sure you're aware of this. That, that's what's coming in front of your life. This is what awaits us on the other side of death, our day before God the judge. The divine judgment in Genesis chapter 6, it also shows us that, that divine judgment is a surprising judgment. That people aren't thinking about this. The people love to deny this, ignore this. If you're here today, part of what Jesus wants you to consider is Hebrews 9, 27. If you're, if you're in this room, you're watching online, this is part of what the Lord has arranged this moment to get you to consider. That just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now, why is that? Why does the Lord want us to consider that? Here's the reason, because future judgment will be just as surprising to us as this flood of judgment in Genesis 6 was to the people of Genesis 6. I mean, think about the story. What were the people in Genesis 6 doing on the day it started raining? They were doing normal things that normal people do. They were marrying. 
They were having kids, they were raising kids, they were working, they were eating, they were drinking, they were doing all the things that normal people do with no, here's the thing, with no thought of coming judgment, without that ever factoring into what their day looked like, without any thought of that. And then the rain began, and when the rain began, it was too late to prepare. It caught people off guard. It was shocking. It was surprising. They just weren't thinking this was what was in front of them. And Jesus says that is exactly how the coming judgment will be for people. Listen to Jesus' words again. This is in Matthew 24. He says it this way. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah. So just like then, got people off guard. They, they weren't thinking about these things. For as, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in the, the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, Listen to what Jesus says. Therefore, stay awake. Don't lose sight of this. Stay awake. Keep your eyes open to this reality. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. He's saying, don't let future judgment be a surprise for you. Don't let my return be a surprise for you. Stay awake. What would it look like for us to stay awake? Gosh, that is a whole sermon in and of itself. Let me just give you one thing it would mean to stay awake. Part of what staying awake means is that we give our lives to lovingly warning others. That, that we spend our days warning other people out of love for them. That we're warning others always, constantly. I mean, Jesus is showing us here, these are the only two options. It is either eternal punishment or eternal life. Those are the only two options. I mean, can, can you just think for a moment, everyone that you have ever met, they will either spend forever eternal punishment, eternal life, Every neighbor you've ever had, every coworker you've ever had, every friend you've ever had. You know that friend back in the fourth grade? Eternal punishment, eternal life. The, the nations, there's three billion people alive right now who are in unreached people groups. No access to Jesus either eternal punishment or eternal life. And part of what it means for us to stay awake is that we are spending our days out of love warning others. Judgment is coming. God is the judge. And one day his wrath will swallow every sin and every sinner warning others. Church, this is why we keep that who's your one card in front of you. 
Every quarter, we fill that out just asking the Lord, who is that one that I'm going to warn? Who is that one that I'm going to plead with God to rescue? Who is that one that I'm going to pursue? I'm going to take that risky step of faith into a conversation about Jesus. Who is that person? Here's the reason. Because it keeps us awake. This is one expression of being awake to God is the judge. One day, every human being will stand before him. This is how we stay awake in church. If this is true, if it's true that every human being forever will live in eternal punishment or eternal life, it's just got to do something to us. It's got to put urgency in us. It's got to give us a deep burden to warn others out of love. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. Now, I just pray this would be the heart of our church he says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. Amen to that. If anyone's going to find themselves in eternal punishment, may it be over our dead bodies that it happens. He says, and if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. Let no one go unwarned or, unpre uh, uh, or unprayed for. Yes to that. May that be our role in our city. That we are the people who are lovingly warning everyone we can that judgment is coming. And may we stay awake to these things. This text gives us two pictures. One picture is of divine judgment, but aren't we grateful that that's not the only picture this text gives? It's not the only picture. This text also gives us a picture of divine grace. Yes, judgment, but yes, grace. As sobering as this story is, and it's sobering, isn't it? Everyone dies in this story. As sobering as this story is, the main point of the story is not divine judgment. The main point of the story is divine grace. The picture of grace is bigger in this story than the picture of judgment. So think about how the story is told for a moment. This story is not full of guts and gore, is it? That's not how the story is presented. In this story, it announces divine judgment and then it presents divine judgment, right? A flood happens. But when the rain starts, when the flood begins, the story begins to narrow. It shifts from what is happening outside of the ark to what is happening inside of the ark. The whole story is written to draw our attention not to God's judgment on the outside, but to God's grace on the inside. That's, that's this story. Right? In the midst of God's ferocious judgment, our attention is drawn to God's gracious provision. That's what this story is wanting you to see. With judgment coming, what does God command Noah to do? Well, Genesis 6 tells us, starting in verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So judgment's coming, Noah. But look at verse 14. God says to Noah, make yourself an ark. This is God saying to Noah, Noah, the storm of my judgment is coming, 
but I have made a way for you to survive the storm. I've made a way through the storm. Noah, build an ark. Think about what the ark represents. Where the flood points us to God's future judgment, the ark points us to God's future provision. So yes, this story is a warning. Judgment is coming. It's saying, don't, don't fall asleep on this reality. This, this story is waving a huge flag of judgment saying, make sure you are aware of this. This is where human history is headed. Everyone will stand one day before God the judge and his wrath will swallow up every sin and every sinner. But the point of the story is you don't have to perish. God has made a way through the storm of his judgment. What is the way? Well, I love how one author says it. He says it like this. Where a wooden ark delivered Noah from physical death, a wooden cross delivers us from spiritual death. Just as Noah obeyed God by climbing onto a boat to save a few, Jesus obeyed his father by climbing onto a cross to save many. When we sort of zoom out of this story and look at the whole story of the Bible, it becomes very clear that Genesis 6 has actually very little to do with Noah and an ark and a whole lot to do with Jesus and a cross. How do we survive the storm of God's judgment? How do we get into the ark, right? How do we get into God's gracious provision? Well, this text has some clues to it. Genesis 6, 9 calls Noah a righteous man, blameless in his generation. It says Noah walked with God. He knew God. And what did that knowing of God, that walking with God produce? It produced obedience. Genesis 6, 22, Noah did all that God commanded him. Chapter 7, verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Now, as the author of Hebrews looks back upon this scene, Noah walking with God, Noah obeying God. Listen to, to how it interprets Noah's life, how it comments on Noah's life. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, the author of Hebrews says this, by faith, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. How do we get in on God's gracious provision? What is the way that God has made through the storm of his judgment? It is by faith. By faith, trusting in God's provision, not of a wooden ark, but of a wooden cross. That's how we get on, in on God's gracious provision. Th that's how we're protected from the coming storm of God's judgment. Let me end like this. Church, a flood of judgment is coming. God is the judge. One day his wrath will swallow every sin and every sinner. And there are two options that we all have in light of that. You have two options, I have two, every human being has two options. Here are the options. Option one, when the flood comes, you'll swim for it. You'll swim for it. Option two, 
You'll trust in God's saving provision. That's it. Those are the two options. You're going to make a swim for it? Are you going to trust in God's saving provision, the person of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection? And friends, I just... I want you to know that if you swim for it, you won't make it. You'll be swept away by the flood of God's judgment. If on that day before God, you're banking on anything but the life, death, and resurrection, it will not work. There is only one way through the storm. That is trusting in God's provision of the person of Jesus. So friends, please don't delay. Make this your day. Make this the day of that decisive decision for Jesus. Will you pray with me? I want to give you just a moment to consider these things, to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful, to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. In church, if I have one job as your pastor, if I have one job, here's the job. It's to do everything I can to prepare you for that day. That day before God the judge. Ministry's built around that. It's built around keeping us all on the brink of eternity for us to, to look past this life to the life to come. And that's what this morning is. This morning is meant to prepare you, to make sure you are fully prepared for that day of standing before God the judge. To make sure that you have trusted in God's provision to make sure you are safely within that wooden cross so that you have a way through the storm, the flood of God's judgment. And for some of us, what that means today is we need to take that decisive step. That this is your day to turn from your sin that is breaking the heart of God and to throw your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God stands so ready to save you. His heart would just leap for joy this morning at that. So there you are in just the best way you know how. Call out to God. Offer your life to Him. Please don't swim for it. Please don't swim for it. Please don't bank on your good works. On your human doing. Everyone who swims for it will be swept away. Trust in God's gracious provision right now. Call out on God. Father, would you rescue? Would you save? God, would you do it? 
And Father, we want to be a pleading church, a church who is awake to these realities, pleading with you to rescue and redeem our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family. God, would you do it? God, give us boldness to engage in those conversations about Jesus. And Father, we would just love to celebrate hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people meeting you, preparing themselves for the coming judgment. So, oh God, would you do it? It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.